0: Welcome to Composers in a Jukebox, a podcast that brings together a special breed of musicians in a conversation about their craft.
1: We are immensely excited to be chatting with Morgan Keeby today, an absolute powerhouse of a composer and vocalist with the most unique sonic palette.
2: So Morgan, uh, how are you doing today? I'm very like, jet-lagged. I just got back from the UK uh, oh, 24 hours ago. I've been up since two, so that's fun.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. Were you in the UK for some time? Because actually all of us, apart from Levant, are there right now. <laughs>
2: Oh, yes, I, I go there frequently. I mean a lot of my work takes me there at this point so I, and I have family there as well, so it works out nicely. but I, sp- I spend a lot of time in the UK.
0: Right. So Jolene and Luke are currently in in London. I'm here in Wales and Levens in Germany. This is the first time that all of us are calling from vastly different ends of, of the continent.
2: <laughs> well, look at yeah. you. Look at you. My last name is Welsh actually. are you Welsh, Darren?
0: Uh, No, I'm not. I'm just here with my parents on a holiday.
2: Okay. Okay. Fair enough.
0: (laughs) Yeah. For our audience, a little introduction on on Morgan and, and what she's done. Um, A really, really unique compositional voice, um, and she's the mastermind behind films and TV dramas, including uh, titles such as Netflix's Grand Army, The Watcher, Tales of the Walking Dead, and uh, one of my personal favorites is Mothering Sunday, which stars Josh O'Connor and uh, Olivia Colman. She has collaborated with a wide range of pop artists, including Harry Styles, Lady Gaga, Panic at the Disco, and uh, she was part of a band called M83. Um, And she's also done a solo project called White Sea, which involves releasing a series of singles uh, instead of a huge collective of work at once.
1: All right, who would like to go first?
0: Yeah, I have a question,
3: if if that's all right.
1: Yeah, go, go, Luke.
3: Morgan, I think one of the really fascinating things about you is what um, a high-level instrumentalist you are in multiple areas, usually composers, not always kind of specialized in certain areas, piano, you know, some of us play string instruments, some of us are uh, flautists in this group, but you do a lot of these at a professional level, so I'm curious when you're I, writing, I I you're
2: writing No, I don't,
3: Luke. No, I don't. over every, here. <laughs> well, I think you're being humble, but you do <laughs> technically you do do them at a professional level because, because yes, I do. You've
4: done gigs <laughs> with multiple of them. Um,
3: I don't think any of us like to think that that way about ourselves, but um, you know, I I, I played piano and gigs, but I, I I don't play cello or sing in gigs, and you you've done all three. So I'm curious when you're writing if you approach different um, pieces. On a different instrument, or if you think of them from a different angle instrumentally, or if you generally go to a certain instrument, say piano. So I'm just curious when you're thinking about writing a piece, if one instrument jumps to mind, or if you tend to go the same one.
2: Um, It's always my voice, actually. Um, Mm. I feel like my most intuitive ideas come from just singing, and sometimes it's easier. You know, I mean, yes. I played piano, I played classical piano for many moons and took up the cello as a teenager, but um, I haven't practiced the piano in a really long time, so I'm not as good as I used to be, and it's the same thing for the cello. I can get by, you know, but um, I would never, uh, unless it was maybe some very basic couple of bars allow myself to be the cellist on a composition. Um, so I find, I find it's usually my voice that allows me to get into, um, ideas the fastest. I, I voice note a lot and even if I end up, you know, doing a melody, uh, on a different instrument in the ultimate composition, I tend to get ideas down with my voice first when I'm in the studio or uh, frankly, just on my iPhone.
3: Yeah, th- that makes a lot of sense as well. I mean, I've had composition teachers tell me, for instance, to to sing things because in a lot of ways, the, the things you can sing effectively are the things that really stick with people in a certain way because it seems natural, even if you're writing it for a flute or a violin or something. So that, that really makes sense to me. Yeah,
2: yeah. And it's also just the most natural for me. I mean, I was a singer before mm-hmm. anything else, um, just yeah, out of joy <laughs> for no other yeah, reason. Also,
3: yeah, you, you don't need an instrument to do it. If you're anywhere, you can you can. No, sing, you do so. not
2: exactly. I'm yeah. not I'm not hampered by needing to grab a thing to make it happen. You know. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So leading
1: on, um, Morgan, I have a question. So regarding your music, could could, could I ask
2: like what what were your influences as a, as a composer or as a composer? Well, there's many ways to answer that question, and I would say that when I saw. There will be blood. I was thunderstruck by what Johnny Greenwood did. Um, and it did, you know, it really, I think, struck me what was possible uh, with film scores. So that, that had a very big, big effect on me. Um, and I, I've also always been an Enya Morricone. Like, d- fan girl. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, and I mean, for 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 obvious reasons, but also, I was always really struck by the dexterity that he had as a composer. You know, he. Um, You know, he was working with such small budgets at one point in his career that the way that he was able to make ideas come alive is it ended up being a big part of his palette. And I think that that is just so inherently a part of my ethos. Without ever having, like, I discovered that later in life as I, you know, grew to know more about him as a composer. And um, uh, it kind of affirmed that there's no right way to do anything. And I think that that is something that we unfortunately don't learn until we get old like I am. Um, But uh, it is such a great lesson. There's no right way. And uh, we do what we can with what we have. And I really value that in his compositions because it made them so unique um obviously aside from his inherent uh (laughs) you know output of uh uh, melody etc so (laughs)
3: yeah yeah that's a really good point i mean some oh go ahead darren
0: no i just wanted to ask specifically which johnny greenwood score were you thinking about
2: it was the there will be blood
0: Oh, there will be blood. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes,
2: yes, yes. Okay. I just, I, I got to see a special screening of it up at the, at the ArcLight, which no longer exists in Los Angeles. Oh my God, oh, no. what is happening? Um, cinema's dying. Ah. Um, <laughs> but uh, I just, oh, no. I just remember being. Uh, I mean, it really just like punched me in the gut when I heard that. When I heard that score to that picture, I was. You know, in retrospect, I, I'm, I'm, I can understand now the collaboration between a filmmaker and a composer. The uh, physicality of that score was really something that I now take with me. You know, I don't know if that was his intention, but that's how I interpreted it. And it gave. Me, I feel like it gave me license to explore something that was already nascent for me. Um, and I will never forget the way I felt in that theatre. It was incredible.
0: Yeah. And speaking of which, what what are your relationships like with the directors that you've worked with? Are they mostly, you know, do you see them as sort of co-workers or are they more of your friends?
2: They're always <laughs> friends. They're always friends. <laughs> I think that there's a, there, there is a beautiful blurring of lines when it comes to doing what we do. Um, there's no way to not get, Uh, even an inch of, you know, you end up getting some intimacy with the people that you're collaborating with creatively. It doesn't matter what the role is that you're playing. It's inevitable. You're, um, Oh God, it's going to sound very pretentious, but I mean it in, in a real way, like you're birthing something together, you know, you're creating something together and, um, artists tend to be obsessive about the things that they're creating. And I'm definitely one of them. Everything else kind of disappears. It's kind of like a baby, yeah. right? Like when you're writing something together, together. It is, it kind of has to be. You have to give it all of your attention. I mean, I, I, I don't <laughs> understand work-life balance. I think, first of all, it's a fucking myth. So. But I just don't think, for me, it's realistic. Like when I'm deep in something, it's uh, all-consuming. And, and it, it has to be, for me, in order for it to bring forth, I think, what it has to be. If that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, gotcha, gotcha.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. Also
3: when you have, when you have a deadline that you have to meet, I mean, some of us work in the industries like orchestrators and things like that. And when the deadline and you know, the recording date or when the scores do that's, that's what ultimately rules it. It can't be, well, Oh, I can only spend eight hours on this, push the deadline back. What
2: a a luxury. I mean, I don't even know what that's like. Well, I will say I work better with a great deadline. Like, I think it spurs me on to find solutions faster than I would if I had time. I don't like having too much time. I find it to be really hindering, um, in terms of getting work done. And I also think, um, yeah, that's not also what happens in episodic TV specifically, you know, you're under incredible pressure with time and, um, Luckily, I thrive with pressure.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I have a question off of off of that. How do you do you ever find that you just mentioned that you thrive in that area? Do you ever find that the time can constrain your creativity? Because, you know, there is this balance of making something that's functional, that works for what you're doing and accomplishes the goal, but is also innovative and creative. So I'm just curious, like, how do you approach, say, experimentation when you're also on a deadline?
2: Well, I think, gosh, okay, let me order my thoughts. I think there are several answers, layers to the answering that question. I think, number one, um, the initial phase of things for me is really where the biggest ideas come out. It's establishing palette or, you know, in some cases, theme. Um, you know, some scores don't need thematic material. Um, that's the world that we live in now. Um, I also think age and experience is very underrated and uh, when you're in the pressure cooker day in day out for years you know how to solve problems while still being extremely creative um and that just comes from sacrifice and and just sheer dedication to figuring out what your what one's process is and um I've even noticed in the last, like, I would say year to two years, like I look up and I'm like, oh, shit, I know how to solve this problem. Whereas three years ago, I wouldn't know how to solve it or I wouldn't know how to solve it in a really in a way that makes me happy i'd know how to make the team happy but it wouldn't be something that i'd be proud of in the end you know it wouldn't be something where i'd say mm, well you know it got the job done but it wasn't necessarily forward thinking creatively so i think it's a combination of experience and time and um uh and also just like being really strategic about how you lay out your own creative, you know, everybody's different, how you lay out your creative process to approaching a project. Um, I don't like to get on to projects too early. I think it allows way too much space uh, for questioning instinctual decisions that can be the best. And I know myself well enough now, and this is just personal to me, my best ideas come really, really quickly. So, um, There are some ideas that I have here and there for a cue or whatever, where it requires me to, um, I think, dig in, whether it's the orchestration or, you know, could this four bar section be more interesting that is is that is, is real and that exists and i i absolutely love that especially the the more I get to do you know orchestral scores it takes time <laughs> you know you don't just you don't just play a synth pad and call it a day um but uh yeah i hope that answers does that answer the question <laughs> no, no,
3: no, no. yeah that was a great answer I mean you went into detail so cool. yeah and, and it's it is one thing that does like for younger composers like ourselves is great about that answer too is just the, you know, it takes time element of it because, you know, sometimes when you feel a certain way about, you know, pressure or deadlines, you just think you're never going to get there, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I agreed. I mean, even for us who are less experienced, I mean, if we look at years ago how our process was, it, it's, it's very different and certainly couldn't accomplish some of the things we can now. So, yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think everybody has the, look, it's, I'm always for, like, referencing people that we admire. But at the end of the day, if your career and your path looks like anybody else's, you're probably doing it wrong because it's not what you do. <laughs> you know, there, there are certain things I can definitely take from people that I <coughs> admire. Um, and that's very inspiring. And it, it helps shape the way I might approach something. But very quickly afterwards, there's usually, like, a, a reinterpretation of what that looks like for me personally and i think that that is a a, you know that applies to work ethic that applies to time spent in the studio it applies to reworking things trusting first ideas you know
0: yeah that that's certainly very very meaningful um morgan i love to chat about your work on mothering sunday um as you've probably sensed i i i absolutely adore um the work that you've done there and i like you know especially how unique and how sleek the score is uh what were some of the conversations that you had earlier on especially that has led to to this you know really engaging very intimate and very unique sound world
2: um well ava Usson, uh the director is kind of my film wife <laughs> she's my main um my main you know i've been talking about
0: a relationship with directors
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like I've 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 known her since I was seventeen. She's my best friend. We're family. Um, I've done all of her projects since she started making um, films. So I feel very fortunate uh, that we have the relationship that we do. So she's been, all to say that she's one of the very few people I come on the moment she gets a job or finishes a script, you know, I'm, I'm in there with her kind of reading and, you know, doing whatever. Um, so when we started to talk about mothering Sunday, it was, uh, I came in early and it was very obvious that this one, maybe we needed to not have me come in as early. So they actually tempt it, which we had never done before. We never temp anything together. This was kind of the first time that we had tempt, um, a a movie, uh, together um, and our conversations were really centered around the fact that the 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 story spans such a large amount of time how do we imbue a sense of timelessness how do we honor each decade that we're in and um and and what i love about making music for Ava's uh, filmmaking is that there's, <laughs> there generally tends to be a conversation centered around the physicality of music and that music for her, she's such a, a music lover and has exquisite taste in music. It's such a huge part of her process, um, that she, uh, uh, really wanted the music to be you know, it's a physical experience of what's happening emotionally. At least that was the goal. So um, it's always, for this particular film, it was really an exploration of of what does grief feel like when you're listening to it in music? What does lust and, and desire and love and loss, uh, contemplation, what do those things feel like if we're writing them into a score? Um, so that's kind of, I think why the score ended up sounding the way that it did. If you ask me to try and extrapolate into that and, like, explain that, I mean, there are moments that are are really obvious. You know, I think there's there's this cue called the waves when um, Jane finds out uh, that you know her lover has died, and it you know grief to me is that stomach churning like, like everything drops out, and it was like how do we express that with strings and and or the palette that we had established. um So it was figuring out techniques and melodies that make you f- like that are almost oh gosh what's the word is it onomatopoeia when a word sounds like the thing that it is, is yeah that, is right. that right okay. So it was kind of that approach yeah. where it's like, if the strings were to do something that feels like grief, what would that be? And to me, it's like falling. And so when you think of a note fall, you know, when you think of a section falling, and 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 the, the kind of, the, the, gosh, I don't even know how to describe it. <laughs> um, <laughs> It was it was it was finding parallels in the orchestration. I think that felt like the physical experience of what Jane was feeling, for example, in that particular yeah. moment. So
0: for sure, and you did work very closely with um, a violinist on yes. this
2: project as well, as I understand. I did Rob Moose. I couldn't have done it without yes. him. Um, you know, it's really hard to program a lot of the things that we did and, 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 you know, he and I definitely collaborated, you know, he, uh, uh, he, he lent a lot of his talents to, to the score and executed things that like I never would have been able to do without him. Um, and, uh, I, yeah, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant violinist. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Of course. I'm just curious to, to hear, um, how much, so in, in, in this collaborative process with Rob, how much of, um his music um especially in the early stages were notated and how much of it were improvised
2: nothing was notated i would be really specific with him about what i needed so i would start sketching something for example Mm -hmm. and say like look this is what i'm thinking bars let's say two to sixteen or something like that i would love to try this technique and uh, and and you know the, this is the chord structure. I'm you know I would give him really specific ideas, and then I would say, but also like run wild, um, with with those parameters. You know, I kind of gave him the same walls to bump up against that I tend to to look for as a composer, um, and so I would get. I would get things back from him that that were just, you know, definitely what I asked for, but also his interpretation of that. And, and, you know, It was so I would get stuff back from him and just be so excited because I was like, oh, my God, I would have never thought of going to that note or, you know, and but it's doing the it's doing the the structure. The bones are there for him to work with. Um, And yeah, he's he's just brilliant. I I love Rob. I could genuinely could not have done that score without him it's amazing but yeah nothing was notated everything I mean, every everything for the larger orchestral you know that we recorded at air that that was all stuff that i you know <laughs> did without him but um but his solo stuff was you know yeah. there was never any notation was that
0: was that with the session orchestra or...
2: yeah incredible players um in london that i feel very fortunate to have worked with um
0: We've also done some, we've also done the score for um, the Amazon series, The Power, and um, Levin has some questions for you. I'm just looking across the screen and he's looking very, very eager. <laughs> 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 yeah,
4: right. So uh, this is, I believe, one of your most recent scores. I think it j- the, the series just came out a couple of days ago, didn't it? So um, we talked about, uh, briefly about the importance of your voice earlier, this one's like a very, um, or, or, or rather voice and, and synth-based score. So um, I'd be interested to hear like some of the conceptual uh, things that you took into consideration when doing that or techniques of recording, editing, vocals, anything you'd, you'd like to share about doing this score.
2: Yeah, oh gosh. Well, the vocal, I mean, you know, my voice is my first instrument. So um, I think that uh, it's very easy to assume that the voice is going to do kind of like a chorale, backing, hemming and hawing kind of stuff, which is beautiful, but, you know, let's be honest, we've all heard it before. Um, I am always trying to challenge myself to find ways of using vocal uh, in new ways. Uh, so chopping it, y- using it as a percussive instrument. Um, and by the way, I'm not doing anything new. It's just within the context of an Amazon show, it feels fresh, <laughs> you know? Um, so, you know, there are lots of incredibly talented uh, vocalists out there doing d- exceptional things that I probably didn't even dip into. Um, but I will say it was, uh, you know it was a com- it was a conversation with the with the power approaching the score was really about establishing palette and uh it's a bit reductive, but also very real and right that um, we needed female vocals for this score. Um, and uh, aside from coming up with kind of lead melodies and lead chorale parts, it was like, OK, well, how do I chop this? How do I use this as an instrument? How do I turn it into something fresh? And part of my process, there's there's a, a one of my best friends, Christopher Ray. I've been working with him for, gosh, nigh on 12. 10 years now. Um, And he's like synth wizard extraordinaire. So he'll take, like I'll send him a folder of vocals and say, go wild. And he'll make these crazy loops and put through outboard gear and synths. And like, he'll create, they will send me back a folder of, of almost, it almost sounds like sampled. It's, it's just wild, wild stuff that sounds like instruments because it's not just running through, you know, plugins or whatever. Um, and a lot of that was really foundational for uh, some of the sounds of the vocals on, on this, on this series. And, you know, I think that um, being collaborative in a process like this for specific things is like essential to keep it, fresh. It has to be fresh. And just hearing a vocal by itself is just like big yawn. Unless it's like the right melody too. I mean, like I don't, uh, once again, don't want to be reductive, but um, I wanted to find a lot of different ways of incorporating vocals without it being a traditional approach to doing vocals. And it was the same thing for the action sequences. It was the same, it was the same thing for everything on the power. I wanted to try to find innovative as much as I could ways of, of of pushing the boundaries in terms of what could be created for such a big series with vocals first and foremost, and then everything else. So whether it was percussion or orchestral stuff or, you know,
4: whatever. All right. And do you find it easier or more difficult if you're working with like recorded elements, um, as opposed to like changing something in MIDI if you're like asked to make changes on a cue? is it uh, more complicated if you're like recording stuff and you have to go back and and change that or what's your experience with that because you're certainly doing both
2: do you mean like with 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 regards to what instruments
4: um for for example if you're let's say you're doing an orchestral cue and you're you're being asked to to make changes on that um as opposed to something that's completely vocally based that's that uh, where well, there's maybe even like that's run through uh, machines you, you don't even have like how how difficult is it to to change that then to,
2: oh well you... well Chris isn't writing to picture. so he'll give me stuff and then I you know the same thing like I had with Rob it's like he'll give me that but I'm manipulating it so whatever is given to me whatever I give them is then given back to me to then work with so it's not just like a copy and paste situation. You know, it's, it's, it's all, it's all getting worked on in my DAW, you know, um, at at every level. So everything is, there's no part of it that uh, can't be changed if it needs to be changed. Um, And, but in terms of the simplicity of things, I mean, obviously MIDI is always easier than, re-record- than re-recording than re things um but uh but then but then again that's kind of the beauty of it too is it's like you work with what you have you know you have to be able to solve problems as a composer and and uh sometimes having things that you can't solve actually leads to some of the best ideas
4: yeah that makes sense
0: yeah that that's truly meaningful i mean just thinking about my own experiences as a composer as well and, and for for many of us here in this little room because um, i started off as a concert composer and then went on to film and one of the things that we we talk about and we we think a lot about um as a concert composer because you're basically the only one that's working on on a piece there, there's a lot of talk on and like you know the piece is yours and the orchestra does what you want them to achieve but You know, as a film composer, it's so much more collaborative. You're not just working with directors or people contributing in terms of picture, but you're also working with people like orchestrators or collaborators on on a project, instrumentalist improvisers. And that's something really special about it. And um, I think it, yeah, it's it's worth just, you know, taking some time to appreciate that element. (laughs) Oh,
2: completely. I mean, look, if any composer on any stage says it's just them, it's complete bullshit, I'm sorry it's like, that's just such a load of crap I love that but it's a lie, it's a lie, like music is made with other people, I mean unless you're I don't know, you know, we we don't live a hundred years ago you know, like There's so many, especially with film and TV. I'm not going to speak to um, classical composition because Lord knows I have not done that properly. So I I won't speak to that realm. Um, But (laughs) no man is an island, my friends. No woman is an island. Um, I think that it's like there is no shame or disenfranchisement from truly giving due to the people that enable the primary creator's creation. (laughs) Like, it just doesn't happen without other people. My orchestrator, I love working with Jeff, Jeff Krika, He's amazing. He does like, you know, Jurassic Park and stuff like that. But when we work together, like one of the most meaningful things he said to me, he's like, Morgan, when I work with you, I get to paint. Because what I say to him is, like, I want you to think of the weirdest shit we could do here. Like, I wrote it, yes, but you're going to take it to a new level. How do we do this? Let's discuss it. Let's, like, ideas back and forth. It's a collaboration. Like, I'm not going to take credit for that all on my own. It's just ridiculous. Like, at the end of the day, your work speaks for itself. It's like people know that it's you. But if you don't acknowledge the people that are a part of your process, like, what is what is the point? It, it is so meaningful to me personally uh just to your earlier point like i do my best work with other people my work flourishes because i surround myself with brilliant brilliant minds and my work would um would be fine i'm sure without them but it's better because of them so yeah
0: absolutely more is more
2: Absolutely. I do not ascribe to the Coco Chanel version of making music, like put one more thing on, don't take one thing (laughs) off, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, You've also done quite a lot of uh, work in the pop industry. Um, And as I understand, you've collaborated with, with massive artists such as uh, you know, Harry Styles, Lady Gaga, Panic at the Disco could I start this segment of, of the podcast on a rather juicy note? Um, which was your favorite?
2: <laughs> oh, my God. How could you even say that? Gross. <laughs> what were
0: some of the best experiences working with... <laughs>
2: Um, boss. it's really hard for me to say because I, uh, yeah. there's, they're each so unique. I mean, my, my deepest personal relationship yeah. is with Brennan from panic. Like I've known him for a long time and my God, he is brilliant. Like he's just such a cool dude. I love having a drink with him and just being, he makes me laugh. So we laugh so much together. <laughs> I love Brennan so much. Um, and he, he just, uh, he's so encouraging and he really, as a, as, as you know, I mostly functioned as a lyricist first and foremost, and then, uh, you know, a top line person with him. So I didn't really do any production with panic, but, um, I think he, you know, I think he always appreciated my storytelling. And for some reason I could always tap into, I think what, the zeitgeist was at the moment making records with him it was just a joy and but he's like one of my dearest friends so I'm a little bit biased about that one um Mm -hmm. and then for Harry I mean you know I never I never met Harry I was in studio with his producers I was just doing some additional production on the last track on fine line but the producers if they're any indication of an artist and I think they always are were just like the most wonderful dudes, and I was just—they just let me go to town. I ten cc'd that track, and it was so much fun. I was like, "Well, they can use what they want and not use what they don't want." And you know, when I heard what came out, I was—I was just like so moved that they had really kind of honored the work that I had given them that day. It was just—it was—it was a really incredible experience. And then going to see him play at the Forum too, and like hearing my backup vocals kind of like soaring through the. <laughs> Thing i was like oh my god i guess they liked it that's cool um if you could actually hear anything through the female uh hormonal screaming which was incredible i've never heard <laughs> anything like that before um and then gaga was just uh, what an incredible woman honestly just, she was just so um studio with some celebrities before and it has not been wonderful and gaga walked in and she was on the phone with her mom and she she's like mom i'm i'm in the studio with morgan today you know she knew my name and she gave me a big hug well, that's
0: so sweet oh
2: it it was just it i mean it's a normal thing to do and it's the right thing to do you know Uh, she didn't have to. And I, you know, it, it, it says a lot about celebrity culture that we don't expect that from people on a large level, but she is one of the kindest, funniest, my God, she cracks me the fuck up. She's so funny. Um, and you know, and, and blood pop. I mean, he, he really trusted me there. You know, we had only worked together one time prior, like eight years Prior to us working on the record, and you know, he kind of seen that I had transitioned into doing composition, and and welcomed me, and was just like, "Do your thing." And I was just like, "Are you sure?" <laughs> and just the trust, and you know, in, you know, when people trust you, it makes you want to go, "I can, I can do this. We're gonna make this incredible." And we had so little time; it was at the end of the project, and. I was just blown away by how inclusive and kind Gaga was. I would work again with her in a heartbeat. She's just a powerhouse of a woman and such a talent.
0: Yeah, definitely. And on top of that, Sue Clayson, could you tell us more about what this is all about?
2: <laughs> mm, okay. Well, I haven't made any music for myself in like 10 years, Um I went through a rough patch in my life and uh, decided that I needed to make music for myself for five minutes instead of the glass ceilings we were talking about earlier that I appreciate so much. I just wanted to do something that felt real and felt, it was joyful. You know, there's no desire for anything with Sue She's, she's, uh, she's a part of me. She's a character. It's total performance art. And um, I just wanted to make something that was unexpected. And it's apparently a 70s Americana record. (laughs) Um, But I got to work. That's actually where I met Rob. Rob Moose was him. I was like, shit his str. I like I love his tech I love what he does his ideas so that's where I met him and after he worked on my record that's when I asked him to come and work with me on Mothering Sunday so it was kind of like a kismet project I got to work with the incredible producer Butch Walker and the album kind of came together very very swiftly and uh uh you know it's Um, I'm tired of what pop music is these days. A lot of the times, um, it's not my bag. Like I actually do like, um, melody. (laughs) I don't know. Songwriting and, uh, and, and that's not, you know, I don't mean to be reductive. It's like, of course that exists, but I think that, um, we've become such a disposable world that, things like really slip through the cracks in pop music and um TikTok has made our attention spans like like this, like teeny teeny tiny. Um so I just kinda wanted to say, fuck it, I'm gonna do something that just is probably mm-hmm. super counterintuitive, but I'm doing it for myself. And um I just wanted to write some really moving songs, hopefully. And um, you know, it's about It's a story. It's kind of stills from a movie in a weird way. It's so cool. Um, Morgan, may I I ask, so
1: currently Sue Clayton is kind of like your alter ego, I would say. And previously you went by White Sea. So I'm just curious, so why do you give yourself different
2: names? Um, I think White Sea is like done. I think I was like done putting out. relatively electronic pseudo I don't know you know it, like like White Sea I can always be grateful for that exploration as a project but it was exploring I've written some really shitty music guys and gals like really really bad music um and <laughs> it's debatable but some of it was with White Sea and you know what that's okay I was finding myself and um I think you know, 10 years on after exploring a different part of being creative. And frankly, like, I'm getting older and I'm not a girl anymore. I'm like a woman. so Morgan, I, can't tell. <laughs> I can't tell. You look really young. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, well, I'm almost forty, so there we go. Um, yeah, the, I love your gasp. I'm gonna live on that for the next week. Thank you. <laughs> I, I have to be honest. You look like thirty something. Oh, bless oh you, God. bless you. <laughs> Although, also, I love getting old. So you know, that's okay if I look my age too. Anyways, it has nothing to do with that. But I, I, you know, my my 1950s ego loves being called young. Um, but yes, I think I think that like. It's, you know, it's this it is a story of a woman getting older, and like what that looks like. And I think age is just so, it requires reflection. And I'm in that part of my life now. So that's kind of where she comes from is she's not reflecting on anyone or anything in particular. She's reflecting on herself. and that's just a part of my my personal journey. But White sea is kind of not really the thing that I'm interested in doing anymore, Sue, feels like a really safe place to explore things that are uncomfortable.
1: I understand now, it's beautiful. I mean, like, it's kind of like an evolution of yourself and finding who you will be and who will very beautiful. Like, you, you really don't know what the future would take, but if you, you know, um, keep in, like, you, you keep what you have right now and, like, make music right now and then you look back in the past like
2: it's really incredible I think well I mean aren't those our well I won't speak for anyone else those are my favorite artists you know like there's an like Joni Mitchell for example I don't like all of her records but I will follow her no matter where she decides to go you know her Mingus album is not exactly my favorite album but I appreciate it same thing with like Radiohead there are albums where I'm like okay I get it but maybe not so much get it, but also can't wait to listen through it for the fourth time and see if maybe I missed something. (laughs) Like I'm on the journey with them. I think that that's more interesting. Like everyone's going to put out something they're not really ecstatic about. You know, it's a reflection of where they are and um, white sea was a phase of discovery for Mm -hmm. me. And I feel like Sue's kind of where I've landed and I'm excited about that.
1: I'm excited too. It's like, it's going to be dropping soon,
2: right? The, uh the, this album yes it is in may beginning of may and if you ask me awesome. the date i can't tell you i'm sorry because I'm i believe not... it's
0: the fifth of thank,
2: may, you. thank you thank <laughs> you my god see this is what yeah. happens when you're on deadlines you just can't remember the things that you actually care about <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's all right and then you have people to remind you <laughs> I
2: it. so we say-
0: What are you most excited about um, with with the release what what are you most excited to have to let people hear
2: um I think the lyrics are incredibly important to me um I think at the end of the day I'm I am a writer and uh these lyrics are just very very vulnerable and present and uh personal and I think that I kind of get off on the vulnerability because it's dangerous. I think there's something very interesting about that as an artist and as a human being. Um, I think it challenges people to be uncomfortable with somebody else's experience and to content, you know, and I only say that because the art that really moves me is uh, like in terms of pop, you know, as a general term are things with, with lyrics and with words that feel so like so intimate and so personal that you almost feel like you should be there. And I really hope that I make people uncomfortable in a really great way, um, especially when, uh, women that are my age. You know, I think that not a lot of people write for women my age. And um, I think we deserve to have some reflection.
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, the what you said about making people uncomfortable in a meaningful way that that's very poetic. I'm I'm stealing that from you.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Just quote me. Quote Love me, you. baby.
0: <laughs> and speaking of discomfort, um you've done some work on Tales of the Walking Dead.
2: Yes. So, <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, it's a massive massive franchise. I think Levent has some questions in Yeah, I got a, got another one for you on on that one. So, um
4: obviously that, that franchise that it has been around for a while. Um, so how, how was it for you coming on board of something that's already that established that has like a, a known identity, really? What were like the expectations and what was your approach in general for that?
2: Well, it was really wonderful because there were no expectations because it's a spinoff. So it's not the actual, you know, series itself. So um, each episode that I did had a very distinct musical genre, which was awesome. Um, so I, I, I got to have a lot of fun. I, you know, I mean, it's like big, big shoes to step into, to do, you know, the walking dead as a franchise has just such a, an, an incredible large fan base, um, that, uh, to do something outside of the is can be a bit. Uh, uh, challenging like you don't want to like step on a a billion people's toes (laughs) Um, but at the same time that's why they hired me so you know they can all deal with it (laughs) um i had a blast and i really loved um working with the team and they were just incredibly encouraging in terms of really just finding the identity of each episode, because I did three and uh, Daniel Wall did, did three. So we were kind of we each had three episodes out of the six, which was a blast. You know, we each got to imbue um, this kind of these these little um, vignettes of Walking Dead world with our own musical ideas and personality. And it was awesome.
4: Yeah, that sounds amazing.
0: Morgan we'd love to stay on uh, to chat with you um for much longer but we're nearing the end um, of our session right now so we've got a, a whole year ahead of us we're we're only in April and it's 2023 what's in store for you
2: I want to get this record out I'm so excited on May 5th I'm very very excited um really really proud of that work and I'm I'm just interested to see, you know, two people may listen to it, maybe less.
0: We'll see. <laughs> we definitely would. Well,
2: thank you. I'm I'm excited about that and um I'm I'm excited to wrap up these really beautiful projects I'm working on right now. I've got a couple more months and then I'm I'm actually taking a sabbatical for the first time and probably like 15 years. So, um, I'm going to take a month off and just kind of figure out what's next. It's a luxury I've never given myself. And I think I, I need to refill the creative well and live a little bit. Cause I spend, you know, 16 hours a day alone in the studio and it's uh it's brutal work. I think you guys all know to some extent, but, um, composing for film and TV particularly is like, it's not easy and it's not for the faint of heart and it's very isolating and i've come to really love spending time alone but i think it's time to to go live a little bit so that's what i'm looking forward to
0: yeah for sure as they say life is not about music Music music's about life so
2: (laughs) until you're trying to pay your mortgage but yes
0: (laughs) (laughs) yes I, mean, I, I definitely stole that from someone
2: what an idealist i love it yeah. <laughs> well y'all are very lovely thank you yeah. so much for having me i appreciate
0: it yeah thank you so good. brilliant and thank you so much for coming on board you have such a unique voice we absolutely love your music
2: yeah, I very, very <laughs> much appreciate you guys having me on